scriptures. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is one of the largest books in your Bible. It's almost dead center. If you get to Jeremiah, you've gone too far. If you're in Psalms, you can go a little bit further. Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll start by reading verses 1 through 5. Receive now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Oh God, we acknowledge your presence here with us and we thank you. We thank you that you have seen fit to call us your people and to call yourself our God and to be among us, to make your home within us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, specifically this word from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And for this morning... For each of us gathered here with purpose, for this is the day that you have made, and we know you don't do things by accident. And so, Lord, in the spirit of thinking that maybe there's something you want to do this morning in one of us, maybe there's something you want to say this morning to one of us, my personal prayer is that you would bind my lips and my tongue that no false word might pass from them. Move me aside completely, for Holy Spirit, you have the benefit of being able to skip the ears and speak straight to our innermost being. It's in great love for you that we pray, God. Amen. So there's something very unique and powerful about eye contact. And we've all experienced this to some degree. Eye contact is unique and powerful in a special way. If, if I were right now in this moment, and I'm not going to, so don't worry, but if I were to invite you to turn to your neighbor and gaze into one another's eyes for as long as you could without breaking eye contact, 
Some of you are doing this in a rather creepy way right now. Uh, I said I'm not going to ask you to do that, but if I did, I imagine that it would be 95 to 99% of the pairs in this room uh, that it would be minutes, not hours, or maybe even seconds, not minutes, before the pressure would be too much and you would be forced to break eye contact, almost against your will. Like even a Pastor Jason-level competitive desire to win the staring contest amongst all the other pairs in the church would not be enough for you to maintain eye contact because there's something unique and powerful about eye contact. Eye contact is transformational. Uh, Back in 2010, there was a fascinating art exhibit at the New York Museum of Modern Art, and I've got to put all my cards on the table before you get any ideas. Please don't invite me to go with you to a modern art exhibit because I am not nearly cultured enough to appreciate modern art. My uh, views of modern art is that probably if I had a blindfold on and then kind of swished around a paintbrush, maybe I could retire uh, after that with the income. But, uh, but many of you, I'm sure, are far more cultured than I and can appreciate modern art. Regardless, I found this particular art exhibit at the New York Museum of Modern Art in 2010 to be wildly fascinating. The piece was called The Artist is Present. And the artist who was present goes by the name, I'm assuming it's her real name, I don't know if artists use alias, uh, aliases, but her name is Marina Abramovich. Marina Abramovich. And this particular piece of art involved Marina sitting in a chair in the atrium of the New York Museum of Modern Art and allowing anyone else who wanted to to sit in the chair across from her and gaze into her eyes for as long as they wanted. Fascinating, uh, if not art exhibit, at least science experiment. Very fascinating. People, uh, this art exhibit was in the New York Museum of Modern Art for three months, and people would line up and wait in line for hours upon hours upon hours to get their chance to look into the eyes of Marina Abramovich. And people's reactions and responses and reflections were observed and recorded, and, and I find them to be incredibly interesting. Many people, and and by the way, people, uh, this staring um, engagement with Marina would last anywhere from a few moments to well over an hour. And these were some of people's reflections. Many people reflected that upon uh, finishing this encounter with staring into Marina's eyes, they felt a wild sense, a surprising sense of peace come over them, body, mind, and spirit, just peace filling their existence. Others felt something welling up within them. They were observed to go from sitting, staring into Marina's eyes to all of a sudden tears streaming down their face and weeping uncontrollably without knowing why they were sad. People just at the experience of staring into her eyes began to weep without 
realizing why. On the other end of the spectrum, many people were observed to sit staring into Marina's eyes one moment, and the next moment, the corners of their mouth are curving up into a smile, and the next moment, laughter is just erupting from their bodies. And she didn't say anything funny. They, they didn't, she didn't make a funny face. They're just laughing, and they don't know why. Eye contact producing laughter. But I think the most interesting to me of all the reflections were a few people who experienced the exhibit and much later reflected back on the experience. And they said, staring into Marina's eyes changed my life. It unlocked something deep within me, a sense of love that I had never felt before. Not like love, romantic love for Marina, but like a sense of just being a loving person was unlocked in a way that they had never felt before. Now, I'm just sharing people's testimonies with you of this encounter. There's something about eye contact that's powerful and transformational. So far uh, this year on Sundays, we've been journeying through a sermon series called Unveiled. And I'm about to uh, give us a rapid recap because this Sunday we're shifting into a new series. And so I want to recap Unveiled. And it's going to involve going through some very kind of complex theological ideas and doing it very quickly. And so I want to warn you to Hold on to your hats, buckle up, we're going on this journey, you can follow with me, it just takes a little bit of mental preparedness, and I promise at the end I'm going to summarize it in a nice analogy. So the sermon series Unveiled has been following the relationship between human beings and the glory of God, and it follows this relationship throughout scripture in a sort of covenantal or chronological way. Uh, And at the beginning of the series, we established two things about the glory of God. The first is that the glory of God is something we desperately, desperately need. But the second is that the glory of God is incredibly dangerous for us. In fact, unmediated encounters with God's glory will result in death. We see both of these things in the story of Moses with the presence of God on Mount Sinai. If you may remember, if you were here those Sundays, Moses was on Mount Sinai and he was reflecting, not reflecting, he was looking ahead on the journey that the people of Israel were about to undergo. And he was overwhelmed at what was before them and prayed to the Lord and said, God, if you don't go with us, If your presence isn't with us, we're lost. And it led him to ask God one of the most bold things I think that Moses could have asked. Do you remember what it was? He prayed and said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's answer was beautiful because it was honest. God's answer was essentially, Moses, if I were to answer your prayer in the way that you have asked, you will die. Because, and the verse says in Exodus 33, 20, no one can see my face and live. No one can see my face and live. But he did answer Moses' prayer. He placed Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covered Moses' face with his hand and walked past. And when he was past Moses, he removed his hand and allowed Moses to see his back. That's a wild story that you can read in Exodus 33 and 34, and we can talk about it another time. Moses was allowed to have a mediated interaction with the glory of God. 
that was safe for him. From there, the glory of God and its relationship to human beings was contained. God contained his own glory, limited his own glory, to a certain place, the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, as it is often called, the innermost room of the tabernacle and later the temple. And there was a mediated engagement for the people of Israel with the glory of God in the holy of holies. It came in the form of one man One day a year, after one very rigorous cleansing process, getting to enter in through the veil that separated people from the glory of God in the most holy place in order to offer a sacrifice, to offer offerings to the Lord on behalf of the people. One man, one day a year, and that was the engagement that the people of Israel, that any human person had with the glory of the Lord, uh, the mediated interaction for years and years and years. Well, last Sunday, the sermon series came to a close in Matthew 27. Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, uh, and in verses 50 and 51, it says this, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil that had separated, that had mediated interaction between human persons and the glory of God was ripped in two from top to bottom in such a way that it could only have been the hand of God that did it. And so here's what's going on here in Matthew 27. Jesus' death is mediating a new interaction for human persons and the glorious presence of God. In his death, Jesus, much like a bridegroom with a bride, is removing the veil to allow us, the people of God, by the mediation of his death, to walk into the most holy place, which we know from Scripture is now where the Holy Spirit dwells, in the tabernacle of our own bodies, to walk in and gaze, lock eyes, with God. It's a very kind of complex series of ideas, and I think it's most beautifully uh, represented in this analogy. The glory of God is like the sun. We desperately need the sun to survive. We need its warmth. Otherwise, without it, we'll freeze in an instant. Uh, We need the sun for its gravity. Without the sun's gravity, our planets and stars would just spin out of control and probably end our universe in a moment. We need the sun for the way it provides sustainability to our ecosystem, for rhythms of evaporation and precipitation, things that keeps our planet alive in a sustainable way. We desperately need the sun. But if we were to go outside into the parking lot right after worship and all stare at the sun for as long as we could, we would be blind. If you'll permit me a little bit of uh, fantasy here, if we were to be so grateful to the sun for all that it's done for us that we decided we're going to fly in a rocket ship to give it a big hug, we would melt long before we got close enough to try. We desperately need the sun But unmediated interactions with the sun will result in death. This is the glory of the Lord. We desperately need the glory of God. Without it, we'll die. But unmediated interaction with the glory of God will kill us. Praise Jesus that he's provided an 
eternal mediation for us to have up-close and personal encounters with God and His glorious presence. This all brings us to our annual theme verse for this year, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, And all of us, with unveiled faces, now that unveiled faces might have an, an, an enhanced meaning, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, or some translations say contemplating the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And the theology that Paul is preaching here is that now that we have a mediated interaction with the glory of the Lord, we get to go on an exciting journey, an exciting journey of transformation. Do you hear that transformation in 2 Corinthians 3.18? As we see the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we gaze upon the Lord with an unveiled face, something happens deep within us. We are transformed. The 18th century English poet William Blake uh, captured this idea very simply and very beautifully. Uh, He said this, we become what we behold. It's this idea from Paul and from William Blake that looking at something, eye contact, if you will, has a transformative reaction. I remember uh, back when I was about 18 years old, uh, I worked at a steel factory inside 610. Uh, And at this time, I never, ever, ever allowed any word that would be classified as a bad word to exit my mouth. Uh, And by the way, I really looked down on people at the time who did allow those words to exit their mouth and praise God for transformation. Well, I spent 40 hours a week with uh, some wonderful people who I called friends who had a different standard about their vocabulary than I did. And I spent lots of time with them, and, and in the steel warehouse, there's not much to do as you're, you know, fulfilling orders, but just talk and share stories and exchange vocabulary. Well, um, one day I was driving, and I remember that someone sort of cut me off in traffic, uh, did something annoying. And it didn't even come out of my mouth, but inside my head, I remember my reaction was a word that you all can fill in the blank. My natural instinct at my, the deepest level of me, it was all reactive, unplanned. What was truly down in the depths of my being was this word. I had begun to become what I was looking at. We become what we behold. And so, In the spiritual journey of transformation, the invitation for us is because we have been unveiled to gaze upon, or as some translations say, contemplate, or as our NRSV says, look, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, to gaze upon the Lord 
and to be transformed. This Sunday commences a sermon series called Exposed, and um, through it, we're going to look at various experiences from people in Scripture of their, their unveiled experience, gazing the Lord, upon the Lord, and what comes forth from their innermost being. You see, when we lock eyes with God, something from deep within us bubbles up. Maybe it's weeping. Maybe it's laughter. Maybe it's peace. And whatever is in our innermost being... The point is, it will be revealed when we lock eyes with God. I think about when times in my life I have been carrying a lot of grief. Seeing the eyes of my wife, Kelsey, has unlocked the freedom for me to cry. Have you had an experience like this? You're carrying something, you're trying to hold it back, and the the eye contact of a safe person allows whatever is inside to come out. This is the kind of experience we're going to have with the Lord. And so today, uh, for the rest of the sermon, which isn't going to be too long, I promise, we're going to just gather three things from Isaiah's unveiled experience in Isaiah chapter 6. And then I'm going to give us a practice of the Christian faith to carry us through the rest of this series through Lent. So, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses one through five. This is Isaiah's unveiled moment with God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I want you to put some imagination on this for a minute. Isaiah grew up in a Hebrew community. Very likely, as one who was called to be a prophet, he would have had experiences studying under a rabbi, the Torah. And very likely, he might have remembered in this moment, he sees the face of the Lord, and he thinks back to third grade Torah class, where his rabbi said, and then the Lord said, no one can see my face and live. Isaiah would have known this encounter that Moses had with God, and he would have been triggered for that memory. To see the Lord's face, he would have begun to think, Oh no, I'm in trouble. Because remember, this is before Jesus. There is no mediated eternal interaction with the glory of God. And here Isaiah finds himself seeing the Lord. And it says this about his description of what he saw. The Lord was high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah has some type of reaction to this experience. He says... Woe to me, I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, there's something here in this passage, though, that's kind of below the surface that is important for us to gather. Isaiah didn't go and seek out 
the Lord's glory and try to peek through the veil. This isn't the experience from Aaron's sons where they went into the most holy place and offered unauthorized fire. No, Isaiah was carried away in a vision by God. Him seeing the Lord's face was an invitation. And here's the first thing for us going through this process of transformation. The Lord is inviting you to come into his glorious presence and look at his face. So answer the invitation. The second thing is this uh, thing that Isaiah reflects on as he has seen the Lord. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The second invitation for us from Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's unveiled experience is to be prepared. When we gaze upon the eyes of the Lord, you will experience discomfort. For Isaiah, he was being prepared to go and be the mouthpiece of God. And when he saw the God who was sending him, his reaction was to say, Oh no, I'm not ready. My lips that I'm about to be called to use are unclean. When you gaze upon the Lord, things from your past, impurities, this is a transformation process we're talking about, impurities are going to come up. Unhealed wounds from your past, something that your father or mother said, something your father or mother didn't say, something a bully did to you in school, unhealed wounds from your past, the loss of a loved one, the addiction in your family line, unhealed wounds from your past are going to come up. Other impurities might come up. It, it might be unconfessed sin, habits that you have you didn't even realize were sin. When you lock eyes with the Lord, these things are going to be revealed. Whatever is deep beneath the surface is going to surface. It might be grudges you've been holding, unforgiveness you've been harboring in your heart, when you lock eyes with the Lord, this is going to come up. This is the journey of transformation. But here's the good news. The third thing that Isaiah 6 invites us to do in our transformation experience is to trust God. For in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah describes this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The third thing for us from Isaiah 6's unveiled experience is to trust the Lord to cleanse all of your impurities, to heal all of your unhealed wounds, to give you the forgiveness you've been struggling to find within yourself. You see, here's the good news. In 2 Corinthians 3.18's transformation journey, you only have one job. And that job is not to be responsible for your own transformation. There's not a big to-do list. Okay, if you want to transform into the image of God from one degree of glory to the next, here's all the checklist of the to-dos. You have to do this. You have to read your Bible this much. You have to pray this much. You have to stop sinning. And if you do, you're disqualified and you start back at ground zero. It's not like that. There is someone who bears the responsibility 
the burden for your transformation, and it's Jesus Christ. In your transformation journey, you have one job. To gaze at the Lord and endure that eye contact as long as you can and allow God to do the transformation work for you. And so as we end today, I'm going to give you one practice of the Christian faith. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola described this practice as looking at God, looking at you in love. Looking at God, looking at you in love. The contemporary name for this is contemplative prayer. And it's simply this. Rather than as you go into prayer in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, whenever your prayer times are, rather than going down your prayer list of people you want to pray for, things you want to ask for, though those are very important prayers to offer, this prayer is different. It's to sit in silence and use all your faculties you can to focus on the Lord's presence with you. And try to stay there as long as possible. I can tell you from experience, this is very difficult. It's, as soon as I began contemplative prayer, all the things on my to-do list, all the things I'm worried about from yesterday, all the things that are coming up tomorrow, begin to come to mind. And the challenge there is to have grace for yourself. Because you know Jesus has grace for you. He's not frustrated you got distracted. And just come back to Jesus. Bring your attention back home to Jesus. This contemplative prayer uh, is best done, I have found, by using a timer. I set a timer. Maybe it's you're starting from two or three minutes. Maybe you're starting at five or ten minutes. Whatever you, wherever you are at, set a timer so that you know the timer is going to do the work of telling you when it's time to be done. And then sit somewhere comfortable, somewhere quiet. Close your eyes. And bring your attention to God's presence with you. And allow him to do whatever he wants with you during that time. It's as simple as that. Looking at God, looking at you in love. So, as we continue over the next 40 days of Lent, going through this sermon series, Exposed, I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of fascinating things to learn But learning things is no good unless we put them into practice. And so I'm challenging you, inviting you, encouraging you, pleading with you. Set aside time each day throughout this season of Lent for contemplative prayer. To go in the quiet of your home or your office or your car and look at God looking at you in love and allow him to transform you into his image from one degree of glory to the next. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that we're not under the old covenant anymore, that the only mediated interaction we have with you is through the high priest in the most holy place. The only unveiled experience we have of you is vicariously through another. Thank you, Jesus, that you have torn the veil in two by your own death. That you've invited us to come and lock eyes with you. Thank you that we don't have to transform ourselves 
that we can lean all the way upon the work of your hand. Help us uh, to engage with you deeply in this practice of contemplative prayer. Yes, to pray and ask as you invited us to ask for the things that we need and the things that other people need, but also to introduce, for some of us maybe for the first time, a, a prayer practice of being quiet, of giving you space to speak and to work. And I pray, Lord, that you would come and transform us as individuals and as a church body in this season of Lent. God, as we continue into a time of offering, I have just two requests. First, that you would bless the gifts that are given in response to your word, that uh, you would use them to bear fruit in your kingdom. And second, that you would bless the givers, that you would bless them with the freedom that comes from giving things away. So we trust you with this, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.